The following podcast contains explicit language, by which we mean potty talk. It's Monday, October 17th, 2022 from Peachfish Productions. It's The Gist. I am Mike Pesca, and I speak to you freshly back from Los Angeles. I had a weekend where I contemplated transportation a lot because I rode it a lot. A transcontinental flight taken in 1963 or 1973 would have taken actually less time to go from Los Angeles to New York and back, or even just one way. They flew faster then. They fly a little slower now, I understand, to save some money on fuel, but that's why they could make up time in the air, and they had to because the flying experience has gotten so much worse. The airline that we took on the way out was actually the most delayed one. The airline we took on the way back, I don't want to cast any aspersions or give you any proper names, but uh, let's just say their name is a synonym for ghost and liquor because you want to drink so much you die when taking this particular airline. But that's okay. They've made up for it by knowingly acknowledging how bad their airline is in the in-flight announcements. Literally, the flight attendant came by, and when someone complained about just really anything, that the seats don't go back, or that they were uncomfortable, or that you got to pay for even a glass of water, he literally said, yeah, should have flown JetBlue. So it does not, even though we've uh, experienced 60 years of progress, it has not shown up in the amount of time to take a transcontinental flight. It has shown up in the amount a transcontinental flight costs. By different measures, uh, they did a study of the average ticket price out of LAX, for instance, and in 1963, it was $300 taking into account inflation because it was really $38. So $300 in today's dollars, and today that would cost $400 in today's dollars, and by today's dollars, they did the study in 2015. So anyway, according to that study, uh, flying has gotten a little more expensive. According to the official statistics, by the Bureau of uh, Labor, it's gotten a lot more expensive. Uh, $100 spent on a flight in 1963 would cost you $1,000 today. But other things have gone up quite a bit. A hot dog is apparently eight times more than it was in 1941. I guess they're choosing arbitrary start dates. And the price of alcohol has also spiked. It's gone up seven times since 1952. I did find, according to this one site called in2013dollars.com, well, I guess that's when they registered it, though they did update it for 2022, that $1,000 spent on a television in 1950 would cost you $8.22 today. You can't get an $8 television. They're saying television technology has gotten so much cheaper and the offering so much better, unless you're a huge Milton Berle ride or die type individual. So other modes of transportation I experienced, the Lime Scooter seems like a good idea. Every municipality, however, has their own rules for the Lime Scooter. So in some places you can't go more than three miles an hour. It's almost impossible to stay aloft or afoot a scooter going exactly three miles an hour. It made uh, scooterability very, mm, shall we say, 
unpleasant alternative to merely hoofing it. And then, depending on when you hit the line for different uh, parts of Los Angeles, boom, the scooter stopped working. So as soon as I scooted into Beverly Hills, I had no scooter. I had a large piece of equipment that refused to move under me till I scooted the hell out of Beverly Hills. Goes to teach you, don't scoot in Beverly Hills. But the last mode of transportation I took, rather than rent a car, we relied on Ubers. And not that Uber is great, but so many of the Ubers were Teslas, I think because of government programs to give the drivers some cash back. What a marvelous car. I've ridden in Teslas before, but I got in some of the new ones and they just are such an advance in terms of everything we're used to in a way that other items in a product haven't been a leap forward, I think, since what Apple was doing, not even to the Mac, but to the iPhone. I mean, they're just such a tremendous technological leap that I can't see everyone who's able to afford one and it will become more people as the technology improves. I can't see everyone not wanting to flock to the Tesla. And there are, and I found this out in California, there are alternatives to the Tesla I hadn't even known about, like the Lucid, which is a very, very nice car. I will say, though, for all my transportation observations, I am quite happy to be back in New York where my dominant mode of transportation is walking everywhere, not improved at all since 1950, and the second most dominant mode is the subway, cheaper than the 1950s, safer than 1970 through 1990, but pretty much smelling the same since the year 2020. I think that is because literally that one particular pool of urine on the F train stop at Delancey has not been cleaned up. Still, a little bit better than the ghost liquor airline. I think you know the one I'm talking about. On the show today, I make some fuss about Liz Truss. Her economic boom went bust. But first, women have made great gains in educational attainment, standard of living, weekly wages. They increased their inflation-adjusted medium wage over 30% since that was first measured in 1979. There's still room to grow, which is a challenge that our society must contend with. But another challenge that most of society doesn't even know is going on is that men have slipped, sometimes greatly, by all those measures. Their average wages are less than they were in 1979, inflation adjusted. Their educational attainment is terrible. Their deaths by suicide or the indirect suicide of alcoholism and drug use is so much lower than women that if it were the other way, we would call it a catastrophe. Well, Richard Reeves is. He is the author of the new book of Boys and Men, Why the Modern Male is Struggling, Why It Matters, and What to Do About It, and he joins me next. I'm here to tell you about one of the most attractive automobiles you're ever going to lay your eyes on. And it's not just how good it looks. It's everything that can do. For those who embrace the impossible, the Defender 110 is up for the adventure. This iconic vehicle has been redefined with thoroughly modern design. The exterior, which won me over, is reimagined with compelling proportions and precise detailing. The interior is built with integrity using the most robust of materials. The Defender capability is legendary, whether you're facing off-road challenges or harsh weather conditions. The Defender 110 lets you go further and do more. Cargo capacity means you got room for your gear. To drive the Defender is to do what you do via your intellect, 
via your passions in life. It is to explore with greater confidence. Ready for a wide range of adventures? The Defender family features the two-door Defender 90, the Defender 110, the Defender 130 that seats up to eight. Learn more at LandRoverUSA.com forward slash Defender. Give me the child at seven. I'll give you the man. It was said by either Aristotle or possibly the Jesuits. I am mostly quoting it from the excellent documentary series Seven Up. But the reason I mention it is that child became man in the telling. In whenever it was invented, the nurturing of children was the creation of men. There's been a total necessary reorientation. So the child means person. And you won't get the man at seven. You'll get the person if you get anything at all. But in doing so, in this correction, has there been an overcorrection? If you look at the statistics, which aren't elevated as much as some other societally problematic statistics, there is kind of a crisis among boys. This is the topic of Richard Reeves' new book, Of Boys and Men, Why the Modern Male is Struggling, Why It Matters, and What to Do About It. Richard, welcome back to The Gist. Thank you for having me back, Mike. So I want to, let's organize the conversation this way. Tell me about what you found. Tell me about the why. And then I want to ask you policy and implication questions. But there are so many statistics that I found uh, really troubling and more so because they're somewhat underreported when you Mm. think about, you know, statistics about, say, the amount of money that female founders of... um, tech companies get, which is a problem. But that statistic is burnished in my brain. (laughs) Other statistics about men are, I I found them from your book. So tell me what you found. Yeah. So, well, I think that you've motivated it really well because one of the reasons I wrote the book was simply to elevate some of these facts. We can then argue about the causes of them. We can argue how much they matter. But I, I agree with you that many of them are just not known. I've been really... I've... I surprised myself by some of the facts that I discovered for the book. And, and I think it's a good rule of thumb. If you're, if, if, if you're surprised by it and it's kind of your field, mm-hmm. then it's a good chance other people don't know. And so what, what I found was as I was working on issues of inequality, education, family, employment, I just kept stumbling across a whole bunch of areas where boys and men were r- really floundering uh, and that wasn't particularly getting very much attention. And we can get into some of the reasons for that. But you know, just to put a couple of data points on the table, if you look at high school GPA, for example, which is a pretty good, both a product and a predictor of educational performance, two thirds of the highest scorers are girls, two thirds of the lowest scorers are boys. There is a, a pretty big high school graduation rate gap, about six percentage points, which is similar to the gap between white and Hispanic kids in terms of its magnitude. Boys are actually only a little bit more likely to graduate high school than kids on free school meals overall. And then if you go to the higher education level where there has been a bit of attention, what you see is that um, women are now 15 percentage points more likely to get a four-year college degree than men, which is a bigger gap than we had in 1972 when it was the other way around when Title IX was passed. So in 72, men were 13 percentage points more likely to get a college degree. Now it's 15 percentage points the other way around. Mm-hmm. There's about 10 million men without, with only a high school education out of the labor market. 
uh, altogether, just to detach from the labor market. And we've seen a significant rise in the number of fathers who aren't in their children's lives. And there are a bunch of reasons for this, but I think elevating some of the facts, some of them are perhaps better known. I think some listeners may, may know that male suicide rates are three times higher than female suicide rates, but deaths of despair overall, which includes not only suicide, but also drug, alcohol, um, those are three times higher among uh, men uh, than among women too. Men are also much more likely to die from COVID, for example. So there's just a, there's a whole bunch of, uh, you know, in, in, in education, work, and family, there's a lot of reasons to be concerned about many boys and men. And I agree with you that those statistics aren't typically elevated for one, you know, one reason simply, I think, is that like it's it's only very recently that it made any sense to look at the problems of boys and men, frankly, because the cause of gender equality was the cause of women and girls. But we've made enough progress now that that's no longer necessarily the case. It becomes an empirical question. Men are more prone to violence. Men are more often victims of violence. Men have shorter lifespans. What about just uh, reported life satisfaction and happiness index? How are men doing? Well, that's a complex question because actually there's been some drop in women's life satisfaction too. Interestingly, among full-time employed women, there's some evidence that the in terms of how you report life satisfaction, that has, has flatlined too. So um, there, there are big differences in the impact of certain life events on happiness. I'd say, I would say the biggest difference is less in the overall level of well-being and more how certain changes affect people. So for example, losing a job has a much bigger effect on the well-being of men than of women. And I think that's because male identity is still so closely wrapped up with ideas of breadwinner, ideas of economic success, that it just has a devastating psychological effect. It's not that it doesn't affect women, but women seem to have more psychological resources to fall back on. So that's an example. And then if you look at something like opioid deaths, which are about 70% men, then I think that's a good expression of the sense of purposelessness, dislocation that you see among men. I was I was really struck by one study Fiona Shan did where she looked at the words that men who attempted or committed suicide used just before their death. So what were the words they used to describe themselves? And the top two words that were used were useless and worthless. I think that speaks to a deeper malaise that we need to take seriously. So much of what your book talks about and what you've talked about is the difference in education. And that's true and that's real and that's that bears examining. And then we jump to the end of life where men are suffering deaths of despair and suicide, which is one of the deaths of despair. But mm. there is the concept that the workplace is still skewed in favor of men. And I've heard you in other interviews mm. talking about this is essentially what you told your three boys. Yes, school is maybe not made uh, made for you, but don't worry, you'll get to the workplace and it'll all even out. Well, is that still true? It, it is still true, but for reasons that it's important to point out. So essentially what I see is an education system that's structured in, in favor of women and girls on average, and a labor market that's still structured in favor of men again, on average. Uh, and so one of the- And mostly because in America, parental leave is seen as mostly uh, punishing women. Is that the main reason why? Well, having kids has a huge effect on women's earnings and employment and basically no effect on men's earnings and employment. Right. I mean, if you look at the, the uh, if you look at the, like, the average earnings like, trajectory for women and men, they look pretty similar now. Uh, through the 20s. And then something happens around the age of 30 to women 
you know, their lines just crater. Uh, right. and so this don't. huge injustice that needs to be addressed is the thing keeping it even, which is interesting because that's kind of an analogy to where the education system was in the decades before this. But I interrupted you. Please continue. Yeah. So I think, but I think that's an important point is that actually there is something of an analogy here because what's happening is there are just different structures and different incentive systems that surround all of us. And so the thing I say to my boys is, look, the education system is very, very narrow. But if you've got you know, difficulties of learning, you're very, you're, you're very skilled in various ways you'll probably find a job. But the but the the way in which the labor market favors men is really just what it does it favors it favors it, it disfavors parents. Um and, you know I was a stay-at-home dad for a while and there's no question that that had some impact on my career trajectory. Now I'm as an upper middle class Brookings scholar I'm not saying this to invite any sympathy from you or anybody else but it is a it's just a, a fact of economic life that there is there are trade-offs here and if women are the ones who are stepping back to take more time to look after the kids they get disproportionately hurt especially if you structure careers in such a way that just at the point you're having kids late 20s early 30s is a critical period for career development it's non-linear in its effect. And so my view about that is like that trade-off's never going to go away, but could we make the trade-off less sharp by having better paid leave, for example, mm-hmm. more flexible? I think the pandemic could actually point to a world where the trade-off is less sharp. And then could we also find a world where men are actually able to do a little bit more of that work too? Not necessarily in the early years. My own view for what it's worth is that dads are really coming to their own when kids are teenagers. And we can maybe talk about that. But there seem, dads seem to have sort of slight superpowers when it comes to adolescence, mums, if anything, on average, are a bit better with the, the really little kids. Um, but it doesn't, like, having raised three boys to, to their 20s, I can tell you, it, it's not over in the first five years. And too much of the debate about parenting presumes that it is. We're, we don't pay enough attention to adolescence, and that's where I think dads could really kick in. So as I examine how we've gotten to this place, it was, for the most part, not due to nefariousness or people trying to... Uh, oppress men in the <laughs> no. year 2020. In fact, the entire, all of our systems of power and the educational system was set up by men and, you mm-hmm. know, John Dewey and, and Horace Mann. And it is true. You have convinced me that the sit in a chair and learn for seven hours with people of your same age cohort is in fact inherently mm, discriminatory or bad for boys. And yet, it was invented by men. Mm. I guess I, I look at um, the course of society and see something like all we've been doing is putting up roadblocks and developing systems which have problems. And then lately enlightenment comes. And so we take away those roadblocks and problems. And we've done mm. a pretty good job when it comes to all the things getting in the way of properly educating girls. And there really were stumbles and hurdles. And now I'm not saying that project has been perfected, but certainly the statistics show that women have caught up, more than caught up. I think that when people were looking to reform the education system and get women into college in 1950s, there was never the notion that it could succeed as fabulously as it has. But here we are. And now men are behind the eight ball. But is this always, is this then just Uh, a question of, okay, let's fine tune it to give boys some advantages? Do we have to do anything to retard the progress of women? No, see, that's the problem. I think that sometimes this is is framed as somehow zero sum. And what I look at, and it's not, by and large, there's no, no, we can get more boys doing better in school. I mentioned like high school GPA, like there's there's no reason why boys can't get do better in high school, right? We don't need girls mm-hmm. to do worse in high school for boys to do better in high well, school. Well, when you it's do the sim- two-thirds and two-thirds 
statistics, that's, sure. that is zero sum, right? I, I guess 50-50 is the ideal, but to increase boys as the high GPA earners, it means you take away from girls. Right. So what, well, what you want is to just improve everyone's GPA, but then have a more equitable share so that the way it's the way it's distributed, I would say, like his analogy with like the gender pay gap. I mean, one of the reasons the gender pay gap has come has actually narrowed is because median male pay has gone down. Sure. Now there aren't very many people, e- even e- you know, even the strongest feminists who think that's a good way to get the ge- to close the gender pay gap, right? And so what you actually want is everyone's pay to go up, but you want women's pay to go up a little bit faster on average, which is what's been happening. And so you want to lift everybody. The point is that everybody can rise. And so then the question is, if you see a difference, if you see a gender inequality like the one in education, I think it's fair to say, well, does it matter? Why does it matter? Well, we thought that it mattered when it was the other way around. Why did we think that? We thought we thought because we thought that if there was a sign that one group wasn't getting such a good education, it was a risk they weren't going to do as well in the labor market. The reason we really wanted girls and women to do better in school and college was so that they could get better jobs and become economically independent. Those same arguments apply to boys and men. It's just that we never had to think that way before because we had a world that was basically made for them. And in education, I think and you've alluded to this, Mike, which is that what we did was we took the brakes off girls and women and took the barriers down. And they just they just blew past boys and men. And, and I think it's important. Like, no one predicted that. Back in the 70s, you talked to the people who were involved in these, in these uh, struggles to get more gender equity. Nobody predicted that the lines would keep going. Nobody anticipated a world where the gender inequality would re-emerge on the other side, but just the other way around. And what would that mean? Would we take that gender inequality as seriously? Maybe not. I mean, there are really good arguments here. Not every inequality necessarily matters. But when it comes to education, especially in an economy that's rewarding more education, I think it really does matter. And we're not sending a message to boys of educational and economic empowerment in the same way we are to girls. We don't have, we don't have a good script for boys and men to replace the old one. So there is a strong nature component to this. The prefrontal cortex comes into play. Sitting in a chair and engaging in rote memorization does not favor boys and men as much as it does girls, let's say. It mm. is odd that this was always this was the system invented by men and has been in place for the last 200 years, but it's very it's impossible to say how much is nature, how much is nurture. Just talk mm. about uh, the nature impact and the importance and salience of uh, genetics and mind formation and and natural uh, predispositions to learn as this system is set up. Yeah, so I think that, you know, the first point to underline is like this wasn't intentional, right? No, no, there isn't a war against boys or war against men, and there wasn't some you know Horace Mann wasn't some secret stealth feminist. <laughs> like you know, uh, it was like I know. Hundred years from now, this will this will really screw the boys over. It is also worth saying that even back in some of those days, there was more emphasis on things like physical education and movement uh, and uh, and some learning with hands and so on too. But the kind of point is, we just didn't question the fact that boys were going to go on. That, that boys' education was more important than girls' education was just sort of baked baked in. But I do think you point to this important bit bit of the brain development. Right, there's this huge argument right now about the difference between male and female brains among adults, right? And both sides overstate their case. And it's uh, basically a not very consequential, I think, to the differences. They're there, but then they don't matter very much. But there's no real debate about the fact that they develop at a different time. The real difference is not in how male and female brains develop, it's when. And so there's no real controversy that this prefrontal cortex, the CEO of the brain, or as I like to think of it, the bit of the brain that makes you do your chemistry homework rather than go out partying, 
Mm-hmm. Uh, and that does develop about a year or two earlier in girls. And so at the age of about 15, 16, girls are just on average just you know, ahead in terms of that prefrontal cortex. And that's not about smarts. It's not that girls are smarter than boys. It just means that they've got the organizational skills, the future orientation. Honestly, it's the best, the ability to pay attention to and care about an intrinsically boring task because it will pay off in the future, right? To sit in that chair and endure and endure that is so dull. And that's a great life skill. And you're going to need it for a lot of stuff in life. And girls just develop it a little bit earlier. And the education system really rewards those skills, particularly at that age. And so it's honestly, we should be surprised, given the neuroscience of the age of development, we should, we, we should be surprised if girls weren't doing much better than boys. Honestly, if you look, if you take a step back and look at the system and say, look, what skills does it reward, especially something like high school GPA, whereas on SAT, ACT, dead even, right? Girls and girls, girls and boys are basically flat even now in terms of SAT and ACT. There's no gender gap, big gender gap in GPA. What that tells us is like GPA rewards doing your homework, turning in your homework, studying for the test turning in next week's homework <laughs> and i've raised three boys and i got to tell you like any parent you say is that harder to get boys to do than girls on average they're like well duh yeah well also i think about the argument well if you sacrifice in the present it will pay off in the long term maybe inherently and naturally it's harder for boys to cotton to that argument but the way society has been structured it was less true for boys for many many years talking about what we've talked about which is the way the labor market has discriminated against girls so Mm. that might also be a reason why you know girls think that the only chance they have to succeed is to do well in school And, and then there's another maybe this is even the opposite argument but neither one occurs well for boys, which is maybe if the picture that they have of the future is one of kind of hopelessness anyway, they'll also be disincentivized to work hard so that it pays off in the future. Nothing is really adding up for a logical and true argument for boys to sacrifice and do their chemistry homework tonight. Yeah, well, that's the thing. Then you get into a vicious circle potentially, right? Because what, you, in a sense, like boys just had the script before, which is like, yeah, you got to do school and then try and get an education. Why? Because that's what that's what men do, right? Because they're going to go into the labor market, they're going to get a job, and actually, you as you pointed out, you could get a decent job even with a relatively low level of education, right? There are lots of industries where actually men could could earn decent living that's less and less Mm -hmm. true that's less true with every passing year so that's a bad bet if you think that you're going to get as good a job as your dad got with a high school diploma you're in for a really nasty shock in today's labor market and so that's the, the trouble is there were more male jobs as you just alluded to that didn't need education so this is like a double whammy for for boys really they've got an education system that doesn't particularly favor them just at the point where they really do need to get an education because the labor market is not a kind place for modestly educated men anymore it was but it's not um it's not anymore and so then then it becomes a question of like well why why bother and it's really Mm -hmm. interesting when you look at the interventions in colleges and stuff that really worked for women i look at this in the book but like free college mentoring programs etc they just really helped the, the women they just didn't they didn't seem to help the men and i talked to one of the evaluators and and i said well it's kind of surprising because quite a lot of the women this is a college uh, mentoring program uh, so quite a lot of the women end up having kids in college this is a community college i mean you'd think that would derail them i said no no the opposite when they have kids they double down 
they're like i've got a family to look after now like so i'm they they, they actually found that the girl that they, they became more determined to get their college degree and tomorrow richard reeves will be back on the show to talk more about this issue and how fraught it is to raise an issue like this, what he did to navigate a society that, while it may be a patriarchy, is also, at least among the elites, inhospitable to arguments that tend to favor or have excessive sympathy for males. And now the spiel. U.S. politics are not a happy pursuit at this juncture, three weeks and one day until midterms, but British politics have gone positively pear-shaped. I find this a spectacle to behold more than a state of affairs to bemoan for three reasons, I think, and here are the reasons. One, the British issues are over, broadly speaking, tax rates, which absolutely can lead to despair and immiseration, but they are still kind of cold and removed. Their numbers on a page or off the page since they retreated from those tax rates. It's unlike, say, I don't know, shipping human beings to a vacation spot to score a political point. Two, the Brits seem to have a means and mode of correction. In other words, their terrible policies are recognized as terrible policies, instead of becoming a bizarro world litmus test for how much you're required to act as if terrible policies are great policies, and this way you show your in-group fealty and maybe aggrieve your opponents. In the UK, terribleness, still a bug, a societally recognized bug. So that's at least good. And three, here's the important thing. It is another country. That's huge. If this were happening here, I would slide it further to the right side on the amusing to infuriating continuum. So, to bring you up to speed, Liz Truss, the new prime minister, and her chancellor of the exchequer, Quasi Quarteng, launched a plan, a scheme as they call it in England, aptly a scheme for its nefariousness. They wished to cut taxes on the rich and most other people, but especially on the rich at a time when this was ill-conceived and ill-advised. And so the pound cratered, the markets tanked. The exchequer is now the ex-exchequer, which isn't a double negative. He is out. But what were doubly negative were the trend lines of the British economy and the prime minister's approval ratings. Liz Truss now has the worst approval for any prime minister in the history of polling the prime ministership. Her approval ratings are lower than Hershey's chocolate in the French national soccer team. But Truss did reverse her policy, and she took note of Quartang's tweet, reveling in his current position. He really seemed to be enjoying the job a couple days ago, enjoying his Downing Street address. He tweeted, I really enjoy the treasury. I really enjoy number 11. And a few hours later, he was fired. That was the political equivalent of tweeting, these bungee cords seem exceptionally safe and not at all too long. Trust then had to meet the press, as they don't say in the UK. It did not go well. What I've done today is made sure that we have economic stability in this country. By speaking in her signature staccato fashion, she did not help herself at all. And I have to act in the national interest as prime minister. She only took four questions and hit upon the theme of decisiveness. But it was right in the face of the issues that we had that I acted decisively. Which is a way of saying 
things were so bad, there was no room for gradual change. What do you mean by that? Truss's fellow conservative party members, such as Anthony Brown, here being questioned by Carolyn Quinn on the BBC, could only sputter the most banal of disaster-related cliches. But aren't you astonished that um, there was a feeling Liz Truss and Kwasi Kwarteng working in lockstep together, we were told, coming up with this plan for Trussonomics, um, that has now been effectively dismantled. Jeremy Hunt coming in, people saying, oh, finally, we've got a grown-up in charge. Well, mistakes were made. Oh, no, pierced by the passive voice. Don't they know not to do this in Britain? They do not. The same can be said of the entire economic package, which had to be walked back, and trust was led there, toddler-like, by Jeremy Hunt, who you heard a reference to in that quote. He's seen as the steady set of hands, who was himself rejected in various bids for Tory party leadership over the last couple years, but he now may be the only party member to have approval ratings higher than sliced American cheese. Hunt addressed the country and the markets today. And I remain extremely confident about the UK's long-term economic prospects as we deliver our mission to go for growth. But growth requires confidence and stability, and the United Kingdom will always pay its way. At least for today, bond traders, the currency markets, and the stock market were reassured. Hunt addressed Parliament with trust, mostly sitting there mum. Can Liz Truss ever recover? Most probably not. Oh, that's not me opining. That was a literal headline from The Telegraph, often nicknamed the Tory graph for its political leanings. A few members of her party have already called for her resignation, though it is far from a clamor. Andrew Marr, the political editor of New Statesman, the magazine, tweeted about the unappetizing prospects facing the Tories. He tweeted, Assessment of the mood in the Commons for a Tory MP, quote, We are being offered the choice of a shit sandwich or a shit sandwich with extra shit. Ooh, cut to the review you had on Shark Sandwich, which was merely a two-word review, just said shit sandwich. Um, <laughs> Where'd they print that? that? Where'd they print that? That's yeah, not real, is it? You can't print that. Spinal Tap was wrong. You can print that. And in the case of Liz Trust, you can also ask the question of her days remaining in office, will it go up to 11? But like I say, there is a... Uh, let me not be crass, a steaming pile of sandwich going on over there in the UK, but at least they know it is a sandwich. There is no base, no Conservative Party base so approving of the cult of trust that they're handed a pile of chicken sandwich and think it's chicken salad. They know sandwich from Shinola. Still, which isn't terribly reassuring for the British facing worse inflation than America or mortgage rates of 10% or winter heating bills that might have an extra zero, sorry, Z at the end than they usually do. But that country still seems to have incentive structures that are sound and the institutions, political, journalistic, democratic, to recognize that a problem is a problem in need of a solution, not in need of dunking, fundraising, or brand building. And that's it for today's show. 
The Just Assistant producer, Corey Juarez, problem with boys is it's played too much for shock value. I mean, how many times are we going to see Homelander split someone in half or that explodo lady make someone explodo and have it still convey the same oomph? Joel Patterson, the just senior producer, his problem with the boy is maybe he don't talk sweet, but he ain't got much to say. And maybe he don't dress fine, but Joel don't really mind. Michelle's problem with the boy is maybe he sings off key, but that's all right by her. Correction, it is not all right with her. The gist is presented in collaboration with Libsyn's AdvertiseCast. For advertising inquiries, go to AdvertiseCast.com slash the gist. And thanks for listening. What we do is if we need that extra push over the cliff, you know what we do? Um, put it up to 11. 11, exactly. One louder. Why don't you just make 10 louder and make 10 be the top number and make that a little louder? These go to 11.